Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I'm Dorian Linsky. Earlier this week, Indian and Chinese troops clashed on the Himalayan border in their worst conflict for 45 years, leaving 20 Indian soldiers dead. The EU has urged both sides to show restraint in the ongoing dispute in the Ladakh region. This crisis comes as India's healthcare system is struggling to cope with COVID-19. Although India is way down the list of infections per capita, the number of cases is rising fast, especially in the big cities, and the government is desperate to get its shaky economy open as soon as possible. And a recent report by Freedom House concluded that under Prime Minister Navendra Modi, India has suffered the biggest decline in civil and political liberties among the world's largest democracies. So lots to talk about. To discuss the challenges facing the world's second most populous country and its populist PM is Hannah Ellis-Peterson, South Asia correspondent for The Guardian. Hi, Hannah. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Dorian. Thank you for having me. So... First up, I think a lot of people probably didn't know what to make of this news um, in the endless sidebar of bad news. Um, can you explain what this friction with China is about? Because it sounds quite because no shots were fired and it was sort of seems like it was fists and rocks. And I think a lot of people don't understand what they were clashing over. Yeah, sure. I mean, I mean, it's sort of the 2020 thing of bad news. I'm not sure. Any of us had sort of had, you know, India-China at war, but there we go. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is a sort of just an escalation of something that's been going on since the 60s, which is this kind of conflict over the border of India and China. And it's kind of flared up in, in, you know, there was this war in the 60s. And since then, there's been kind of escalations, but nothing that, nothing that radical really for about 40 years. But over the past month, China have started to kind of encroach and build up troops in this Ladakh region, which is this kind of very beautiful, very mountainous region, um, completely un- inhospitable by anyone. And the border is therefore kind of very unclear exactly in the sort of the line of the actual of actual control as they refer to it isn't really kind of actually designated but yeah over the past month china have kind of been brought, brought in troops artillery um been setting up camp closer and closer to the line that india considered to be their territory and it's happened obviously during the time of coronavirus when you know india was had kind of reduced a lot of its patrols in the region and had sort of turned away it seemed from you know, from kind of this aspect, this kind of conflict, I guess. So it definitely took them by surprise. Um, and this escalate, and the, over the past month, there had been this kind of build up, and there had been some sort of fisticuffs, as it basically were, over, between the troops on the ground. Um, but no one had been killed. And it was there in June, the two sides had agreed to de escalate the conflict. And in this kind of escalation on China's side has been sort of, I guess, a response to, I mean, they've been doing this. They've also been doing this in the South China Sea. They've been kind of asserting China's presence uh, in the world um, in the face of a lot of anti-China sentiment. And I think in India's side, sort of reminding them of that, that, that China is there and that, you know, they can't push back against China too much because they have this border with them. But both sides agreed to de-escalate in kind of 6th of June. But it appears that on the ground level, this wasn't really happening and that, but you know, a lot of tension between the troops. And on Monday night, it appears that a group, one Chinese troop had agreed to remove out of an area, but were then found by uh, the Indian troops as not having moved out. What actually happened there is is very unclear um, because the reports have been very confused. Uh, Indian media and Chinese media have two very different versions of what went down, very unsurprisingly. Um, but according to the Indian side, it was a premeditated attack, which happened on their side of the border. Um, they found Chinese troops and then the Chinese troops went back to their camp and came with kind of rocks, clubs wrapped in barbed wire, kind of this very sort of Stone Age type weapons, because there is this long standing agreement between the two sides that they won't actually fire, uh, that they won't use weapons. 
apparently, I mean, some say, some say they're unarmed, some say they didn't use their weapons. I mean, again, very confused. But what did happen was this kind of bare knuckled hand, you know, hand to hand combat on this kind of steep precipice. I mean, we're talking kind of insane mountain regions. It's kind of you know, kind of completely inhospitable. So this kind of, and this happened into the night. They were fighting. Men fell into the freezing river. They fell into the snow. And for sort of four or five hours, they just fought hand to hand. And three of them actually died there. But what happened is loads of them sustained injuries, which in these extreme climates, you know, become much more life-threatening. So, because it sounds like a mess. Oh, it's a total mess. <laughs> so, um, does I mean, does that mean that the kind of the the actual governments are keen to continue with the de-escalation? de-escalation? Because it doesn't sound yeah. like it was anyone was ordering this. Yes, yeah, so this is the thing. It's not wasn't order from above. It was a sort of I mean, some people describe it as sort of mishandling of the de-escalation. But yeah, it's certainly not in India or China's interest to go into a sort of global war at this point. Um, both of this was just a lot of kind of military posturing. And a lot of, you know, they both kind of built up uh, troops on both sides. You know, India has been doing a lot of infrastructure building on their side, roads, uh, airstrips, things that kind of ease the way for the military and which China has viewed with a lot of suspicion. And so a lot of their troops seem to be in sort of response to this to basically tell India to stop doing their building. So a lot of this was just kind of warning shots. And this was just on a ground level, it getting out of hand. But yeah, certainly on a political level, neither China nor India, you know, in a time of pandemic, have any interest in this escalating into an all-out war. Well, that's that's good news. <laughs> well, I mean, but, you know, as you know, as it shows, these things also spiral yeah. out of control, and you know, the political interests, you know, and then what happens in the ground. There's obviously a huge like difference between those two things. So, you know, well, moving moving on to COVID nineteen. Um, yeah. India did lock down early and and very abruptly. Um, I yeah. think at the end of March, giving only only for four hours' notice. Um, but it seems to be really struggling with the rising number of cases. On balance, um, like what's the country done right and and wrong during um, the pandemic? Are there any kind of major uh, blunders you think they've made? Well, I mean, it, to be fair to India, this this is pandemic was always going to be bad news for them in many ways it's a lose-lose situation locking them locking down early was effective in you know it was effective in stopping the virus it was also caused what could be described as one of the greatest humanitarian crisis in the past 50 years which is all these millions of migrant workers who got stuck all over the country and were unable to have jobs you know they were unable to feed themselves they started to walk home and so it kind of impacted on India's poor uh, in this really catastrophic way um, but it did also, you know, slow down the impact of the, the spread of the virus. But what they didn't do in these kind of three months where they locked down is they didn't actually do any investment in infrastructure, in health, in healthcare. They didn't, you know, they didn't start building hospitals then. They didn't pump money into, you know, testing and tracing. It just became this kind of pause button on what was always going to be a disaster. Um, but they just didn't really utilize this time. So what's happened is... Now they've had to unlock the country. They've had to do it in a time, you know, when it's actually just not even near to the peak or we're in the peak. They're talking about the peak actually hitting in November now, which is just absolutely <laughs> catastrophic. And so it was just this kind of complete mishandling of it where they 
lockdown in many ways was the easy option for the government and the complicated bit came after which is kind of an analyzing what was needed you know india's healthcare system was already on the brink of collapse before covid it's completely dominated by private healthcare there's no you know they spend 1% of their gdp on healthcare so it's already kind of a sort of state of crisis um, and so then you bring a pandemic into that and they just didn't really know what they were doing and so what's happened now is it's lifted you know the lockdowns lifted the lid's been lifted and it's, it's genuinely chaos in you know the biggest cities of India. It's You cannot get into the hospitals, you cannot get healthcare, it doesn't matter what you have, COVID or you know dengue fever. And people are dying outside the hospitals, there's no testing. It's, it's, it's like truly catastrophic actually at this point. What, because we've talked to, I mean, for example, we spoke to um, uh, Dom Phillips in Brazil about what the COVID response revealed about Bolsonaro's kind of philosophy of government. What does this tell you about about Modi as a kind of decision maker, as a leader in a crisis? How much of this could, because presumably there are certain things like, um, you know, if you've got problems in a healthcare system, those can go back many years. But what are the bits that you think you can, the mistakes here that you could definitely trace to, to aspects of his leadership? Well, I think it just shows a complete disregard for, for India's poor, for the millions of working poor. They're the ones who were hit hardest by the lockdown and no real kind of uh, anything was really done for them during the time of crisis. And now they're the ones that can't access the hospitals, who are the worst affected by the virus. They're the ones that live in these very cramped conditions who have no possibility of doing physical or social distancing. Um, you know, there's no means for them to get tested. There's no means for them to get the healthcare they need to get into the government hospitals. The private hospitals are charging people sort of 800 pounds just to, you know, get for one night. So there's this real kind of divide in India that was always there between rich and poor, which has just been absolutely blown apart by, by this pandemic. And it just shows the kind of callousness of the Modi government and the complete disregard they have for this kind of section of society. And it's really interesting because the way that, COVID, you know, it's sort of terrible defining thing about COVID in India is it's also been co-opted as a, as a kind of religious issue. So it's been, it's basically kind of in many ways fueled this divide between Hindus and Muslims where COVID has been co-opted as this Muslim disease. It was this Muslim organization that were blamed initially for the spread of the virus um, and were described as having fought Corona jihad. They were accused of going of going into communities to spread the disease. You know, there's been boycotts of Muslim vegetable sellers. Muslim patients have been banned from hospitals. Um, a Muslim town in um, West Bengal was basically torn apart in this religious riot, fueled by the fact that they decided that a whole load of Muslims in the town had coronavirus and were spreading it. Um, and two BJP MPs are now actually being charged for kind of fueling this violence. Oh, right. So it isn't that they were just turning a blind eye, but they were actually fueling no, these theories. The BJP who've actually been lead, you know, there's it was there. It was the BJP leaders who, like a politician, who were the ones who called for this boycott of uh, Muslim vegetable sellers, who said this Muslims are spitting on the vegetables and they're spreading the disease. They're spitting into your rations and spreading the disease. They are, you know, they're fighting. They describe it as Corona Jihad. It's this very kind of powerful word. They call them the kind of Corona Taliban. It's very evocative language that has been been used by actual politicians and leaders within the BJP. So, and it's this terrible thing if you talk about kind of Corona as this kind of great unifier, people coming together. But in India, it's just fractured it down, these kind of terrible lines of poverty and lines of religion even further than before. 
Uh, and the, the far-right Hindu supremacists of the RSS go back uh, almost 100 years. One of them mm. uh, famously killed Gandhi. What's the relationship between the BG, BJP and the RSS? Well, the BJP is sort of widely considered to be the sort of political wing of the RSS, um, the sort of acceptable face of the RSS. Um, you know, the RSS are, you know, categorized as a terrorist organization under a lot, most Western governments, um, but less so increasingly how the BJP are in power. But the BJP, you know, most of most BJP politicians, not most of them, but a lot of them, you know, started out in the RSS youth wing. There's a lot of, there's just a lot of overlap between membership between the two. And obviously within India, with the BJP in power, you know, there's been this kind of rehabilitation of the RSS. And when there were a lot, a lot of these protests that broke out in India, anti-Modi protests that happened the first anti-Modi protest that had really happened in India in December in response to a citizenship law that he introduced, which basically discriminated against Muslims and said refugees of every religion except Islam can get uh, citizenship to India. The RSS were the ones mobilizing in against these anti-Modi protests. So their kind of support for Modi, support for the BJP is very out there and very in the open. Um, and so it's kind of this rehabilitation of, of it, this kind of fringe fascist organization to kind of mainstream politics well yeah because i came across one of modi's ministers getting a crowd to chant the slogan shoot the traitors to the nation um, yeah yeah and, so, and, and that, you know that that's a minister so is it just has it become very unsafe uh even to even to sort of protest or to, to well, demonstrate it- well, well. So this is interesting because again, so this 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 really kind of warped, and this is a terrible thing that COVID did. It sort of put a stop to this. But in December, January, February, there was this real backlash against Modi in response to this, um, in response to this Citizenship Amendment Act, um, and and it was amazing because you had millions of people on the streets from all religions, all walks of life, and you know they were coming out in such numbers that even the government couldn't like ignore them and say they were just a small kind of fringe group. But what's happened uh, in in the past month is that m- the people who organise these protests have now a whole load of them have been arrested and b- they've been blamed for these religious riots that happened in Delhi in February, which was started. I mean, they were actually the kind of main reason they started was this comment by a BJP leader, which was provoking his his followers to clear the streets of the Muslim protesters. And he's, he basically issued this ultimatum to the police saying, if you don't clear them, we'll come out in our droves and we'll clear them. And what happened was three days of riots in Delhi where 50 people were killed, 40, around 40 of whom were Muslims. Muslim home were destroyed. There were Hindu mobs m- moving through the streets. It was the worst religious riots that Delhi has seen in decades. But what's happened is that now the Delhi police over the past couple of months are blaming the leaders of those protests in December. They're blaming them for starting the riots. And there's huge, they're accusing them of coming up with this conspiracy to, you know, start these, all, all their protests were part of a conspiracy, which then led to the Delhi riots. And they've arrested all these senior activists and all these kind of feminist activists and all these students who are all involved in this democratic, pro- these democratic protests. So basically, it shows that actually, eventually, you know, they might take their time, but then there is no space for democratic protest in India anymore. Like, it will eventually get you arrested and caught up in some, I mean, it's the most brazen conspiracy uh, by the Delhi police to kind of arrest all these activists. Um, but, you know, and, the, and they're arresting them under terrorism laws. So they're actually accusing all these anti-government 
Well, this pro-democracy uh, protesters of being terrorists. Well, I wonder because populist leaders in different countries do tend to be bracketed together. Um, mm-hmm. But one of the the kind of the, the major sort of observations about Trump and Bolsonaro is they're not particularly um, ideological. Um, they're very sort of, uh, you know, there's a sort of selfish power-seeking urge above all else. Mm. So with Modi, because he seems to have this uh, this huge sort of religious identity aspect to his program, is he, like, how comparable is he to those figures? Do you think he is something quite different who wants something quite different? I mean, I guess he, he has a very strong agenda around him and uh, the people around him have a very strong agenda. I don't know. It's I, I guess I've never really thought about it that way. But um, in many ways, I think it makes him more terrifying because there is this sort of just because the agenda he has threatens to shift the entire basis of India as a nation. You know, his, his agenda is essentially to remove to change shift India from a secular country which welcomes all religions, the second most popular country in the world, the populous country in the world, to them becoming this kind of fascist Hindu-led nation which discriminates against 200 million of its citizens and, you know, encourages this sort of state-sponsored violence in the name of religion. And I think kind of, kind of that shift is, in many ways, I think even more terrifying than this sort of populist movement because the, the sort of impact it's having on India and has had on India since Modi was in power in 2014 is so obvious and has such a sort of impact on every aspect of society and has fueled so much prejudice so I think that's a sort of, that's in many ways where I see this kind of terrifying aspect of Modi well, in that sense. Well, call me naive, but I mean, often when you do have a kind of um, a racist or uh, fascistic um, regime that wants to um, that particularly hate a particular group, their aim is to remove them um, one, one way or another. You with the Muslim population of India is is absolutely vast. So how does Modi think that it's the BJP? How is it tenable for them to treat Muslims this way when they are such a huge part of the of the country? Like how can they how sustain a sort of two tier country? Well, I mean, I guess the end goal is that they want to drive them all out into Pakistan. That's the sort of the idea they have that, you know, Pakistan is this sort of, you know, lecherous like, late nation, Muslim nation on the side. All Muslims should just go there and leave um, India for the Hindus. But the way that they do, I mean, one of the interesting things about the Citizenship Amendment Act, to go back to that, the citizen bill they introduced in December was another thing they introduced alongside it was this idea that they were going to do this national register of citizens and every citizen in the country would have to present documents. But because of this citizenship amendment act, the only people who would have to prove their citizenship would be Muslims. So, and obviously no one in India has paperwork. No one has documentation. People move around the whole time. And so it would be fine, but because it would only be Muslims who would be the ones who wouldn't automatically get the citizenship, they're the ones who would have to present the documents to prove that they were refugees, to prove that they are worthy of being in India. So the idea here was a sort of just slowly, slow disenfranchisement of, in, of, of Muslims. And the idea was then that, you know, if you're, you're then deemed an illegal immigrant in your own country, um, and then they get chucked out. I mean, that's the sort of the end goal here, which actually became... I don't know, quite accelerated and sort of easy to see how they would actually do it in practical terms, rather than it being this sort of general idea of shifting India. It actually then became moved into legislation and it became a sort of practical way in which you could could possibly disenfranchise 
large number of India's Muslims and claim that they're actually illegal immigrants in their own country. Well, it's obviously a, it's a really extreme, terrifying project. Modi became PM in 2014, won re-election last year. So he's obviously got his supporters. How popular is he right now? Like, have, have, has anything like these kind of protests or indeed the response to COVID, um, you know, dented his, his popularity? Well, the, the protests that happened in December and, and they went on for a couple of months were the first time there had ever been any backlash against Modi. And it felt like this could be this kind of really big moment. But then COVID came in and initially Modi has done really well out of it. He seemed to, he's very, he's very good at sort of these public addresses on TV. He gets people to stand on their roof and, you know, hold up their lighters or, you know, bang pots. And, a lot that, and that was really emotive. He was really good about kind of bringing that all together. And Initially, because India, because of the lockdown, it looked like India was actually their figures for spread for the infection rates was quite low. So people were kind of initially, which seemed extraordinarily premature, were sort of saying like, "Oh, India's actually beat this. Modi's done really well," and his popularity went up to eight over eighty percent um, about a couple of months ago. But now lockdown has been eased and the numbers are going up and it's impacting every member of society. And it's really interesting because it's even, you know, it doesn't matter how wealthy you are, you still can't get into hospitals, which is just unprecedented mm. in India. Like usually you've got enough money, it'll get you where you want. But here for the first time, people can't really sort of buy their way into hospitals. And that's now having an impact. The people who believe that Modi could solve everything and would make India great again and, you know, would kind of, you know, put its name back onto the world stage are realising that actually, at this point, he can't even get them a hospital bed. What's it like as um, as a journalist? Is it is there a sort of Trump-like, uh, you know, sort of demonisation of, of journalists who, who raise any criticisms? It's pretty awful as a journalist. I mean, not so much from the... I mean, so the Modi government do it in a much more subtle way. So um, there's just a lot of pressure on foreign journalists. Um, I mean, there's a lot of pressure... They, they, kind of national like domestic media there's an enormous amount of pressure and a lot of it is extremely pro modi at this point um they've he's really they've really got the media under their thumb so you very rarely see a kind of pushback against modi's agenda with international media they do it in a much more subtle way so i mean they don't really kind of speak out uh, about they don't speak out you know publicly against public uh, foreign journalists but they you know they have their ways and means of trying to exert pressure and but it more just comes from this kind of troll army which are just they you know every time you write something you get just an absolute onslaught of abuse um you're just regularly accused of being kind of pro-muslim they have this huge thing about you being an urban naxal that's a really a phrase they love i mean there's it, it this sort of wave of hatred um it can be pretty overwhelming when you first start and they kind of once they find out who you are and mm. you know your position they they you know every time i write something which touches upon the communal divides in india i get a huge backlash particularly on twitter which is where a lot of these trolls operate and it's just pretty nasty um and just kind of but i mean it shows this really dark side of, of india um to be honest and is there anything that um that sort of western governments uh can do to sort of um to put pressure on him have they have i mean have they have they sort of have they tried you know to kind of uh, reprimand him for some of this stuff um well this is the thing it, it, it seems like not so much you know i it doesn't feel like at least publicly um basically i think we we want india as an ally um it's kind of very important and there's a lot of kind of 
it's very weighted in terms of the British the British criticizing India. It comes with a lot of baggage, um, as you can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, there's some, so there's some statues about that. <laughs> yeah. So we have to tread carefully. But also I, I but I, I, I think it's actually abomination. I think that we should be standing up for Modi and Modi's government a lot more, particularly when you've got people like Trump who are really happy to share a stage with Modi, pat him on the back, tell him he's brilliant, you know, as happened at this kind of Trump visited uh, in February. But yeah, it feels like, you know, people don't really call out the human rights abuses that are going on in India, um, particularly that are going on against the Muslim population in India. Um, I think that it's kind of diplomacy over human rights tends to be the sort of name of the game when it comes to working with India. We know, I think, you know, sort of post-Brexit world, we see them as an important trade partner. So yeah, you very rarely see kind of rebukes of India and rebukes of the Modi government um, even though, you know, even, and this was really interesting when, you know, when they revoked the special status of Kashmir in August, which was the kind of clear violation of human rights, the international kind of response to that was pretty, pretty quiet. It was only really China uh, and Pakistan who spoke out about it. Everyone else just described it as an internal issue, even though the Modi government had gone in and taken away the autonomy of, you know, the most populous Muslim state in India who've had a special status that was given to them you know, 70 years ago. And in one one motion, they took that away and have taken control of it. So, and we didn't really say anything. And n- most of the Western countries didn't say anything. Finally, there were people saying last year that, you know, that maybe even after just, you know, one term and a bit uh, of Modi and the BJP, that India didn't really sort of qualify as a liberal democracy anymore. And obviously that there there is a sort of degree of subjectivity in, in how you would define that. Do you feel that it? Do you feel that it, it it has crossed that sort of Rubicon and it is now something else, or that that is that is a danger, but we're not there yet? I mean, certainly on the cusp. I think the sort of the basics of democracy, of freedom of the press, even freedom of the judiciary—they're all really under threat. Such sort of disappeared entirely, and you know the arrest of you know you know I think there's all, the the fact that all the kind of leaders of these protests, the biggest pro- uh, protests against Modi are now sitting in de- jails in Delhi is pretty much a sign that this isn't a country that allows democratic protest and doesn't allow, um, you know, any kind of opposition. So I think, yeah, it's always, I mean, I think it's always been difficult to describe India as the world's biggest democracy. I think there's always been a lot of problems with that. But yeah, I think increasingly now, um, the way that the Modi government operates is just this very dictatorial way with this, you know, kind of very terrifying agenda that has eroded, yeah, freedom of speech, eroded pro- freedom of protest, uh, eroded freedom of the press, yeah, and just is made, made it a kind of impossible place for 200 million Muslims to live. Yeah, a place where COVID is not is really not the biggest problem. <laughs> but, you know, but it's also now might be. It's, yeah. Throw COVID into that mix, it's just, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a nightmare, actually. Well... Thank you so much for joining us, Hannah Ellis-Peterson. You can read Hannah's work in The Guardian. And thanks to you all for listening. There's a new Bunker Daily every Monday, Tuesday, Thursday and Friday, and the weekly show every Wednesday. Stay safe. The Bunker Daily was presented by Dorian Linsky. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold. And audio production was by me, Alex Reese theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. Bunker Daily.